In a Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode 16, May 2019, Voice and Speech, a conversation with Kristen Linklater. Hello, Paul Meyer here with my latest podcast, a service of paulmeyer.com, where you'll find all my books, ebooks, and services for spoken word training and coaching. In the previous podcast, I started a recurring feature, Guess That Accent. I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Well, here's a story for you. Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse who had been working dining at a zoo in a deserted district of the territory. So she was very happy to start a new job at a superb private practice in North Square near the Duke Street Tower. If you guessed China, well done. If you guessed the Chinese province of the speaker, Anhui, A-N-H-U-I, you are amazing. It's Anhui 2, submitted by senior editor Bill McCann. To hear the whole recording, search for Anhui 2 at dialectarchive.com, the home of the International Dialects of English Archive. Idea. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? Well, here's a story for you. Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse who had been working daily in an old zoo in a deserted district of the territory. So she was very happy to start a new job at a superb private practice in North Square near the Duke Street Tower. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. My guest today is Kristen Linklater a towering figure in the field of voice training. Now 83, she has retired to her beloved girlhood home, the remote Orkney Islands, ten miles off the coast of northern Scotland. Did she rest on her laurels? Nope. She built the Kristen Linklater Voice Centre, attracting students of voice from all over the world. And when she's not teaching there, Kristen travels the globe, imparting her ideals of free, authentic voice and speech. I thought we'd kick off by my asking you to, for the general listener, the general curious, educated person who is our listener, to pass voice and speech. What does voice accomplish that speech does not? What does speech accomplish that voice does not? Separate the two, because in the popular imagination, I think voice and speech sort of are synonyms. Yes, the simple way to say it, but it's actually quite a complex thing to take on board for the, for the lay person is that voice can communicate without speech, but speech cannot communicate without voice. For the lay person, that takes quite a bit of thinking about. So I'm going to say it one more time. Voice can communicate without speech. That is, I can go, oh, or, oh, or, ah, but speech cannot communicate without voice. There is no such thing as speech without voice, right? There you go. That's the bottom line. Also, we were born first with voice and then acquired speech. When the baby is born, the first breath that goes into the body makes sure that the baby can live 
And then the next, very shortly afterwards, a breath goes into the body that turns into a wail, a cry. And that cry indicates that the baby is hungry and uh, milk, warm, comforting milk then comes in and stops the pain, the pang of hunger. And the baby's body learns that if I wail, I survive. If I breathe, I live. If I wail, I survive. So it's only later on that the environment or the family or the the culture then says, and now how about some words? And that's when things begin to be shifted and changed in this spontaneous connection between the impulse of feeling and voice. And when we grow up and become members of Parliament and are sitting in in the House of Commons debating Britain's future... No, as don't, we don't want to do that, is all I can say. <laughs> we would be mad if we did that. So when, the, when, our, when our members of Parliament are up on yeah. their hind legs and uh, delivering yeah. themselves of their sentiments in voice and in speech, what kind of points are they scoring with voice and what kind of points are they scoring with speech? Politicians are trained to say what the policy wants them to say. I think it's very seldom that you hear a politician speak authentically from his or her own personal point of view. Mostly, to my ear, the public voices, the politicians' voices, are not to be believed. Do you derive that opinion from the words that they say in their speech or something that's less than authentic? In oh, their in their voice? voices, in their voices. In the, vo- the voices are very often accommodating in some way. The voices sort of come out and are somewhat manipulated. I would like you to hear and understand that I am making an important point here. There's none of the prosody of real speech. They're usually manufactured voices in order to deliver what is expected as a result, a result of what they're going to say. So, And then once in a generation, some genius public speaker arises who compels us with the apparent authenticity and spontaneity and sincerity and who you really use the voice as as you would have us use it, right? I think the simplest thing is to say, how does the voice work? The simple anatomical picture, there's a desire to speak which creates an impulse electrical signal in the brain which runs down the spinal column, goes into the central nervous system, activates the breathing musculature, diaphragm, maybe intercostals and diaphragmatic crura. Breath goes in. At the same time, the vocal folds come together. The breath plays against the vocal folds, creates a vibration which is immediately amplified by resonators throughout the body, uh, certainly from the chest to the throat to the mouth to the face, all the bony parts of the body and the cavities in the body. Fairly simple picture. Desire to speak, breath, vocal folds, resonance, and there's your voice. And then lips and tongue articulate. As soon as that happens, the desire to speak, very often 
for many of us, whether we're politicians or just people trying to get along in life, a secondary impulse comes into the brain that says, no, don't say that. That'll get you in trouble. Or it says, I don't quite think what I think I feel. I'm going to say what I should say. And at that point, the stomach muscles tighten, the breath does not go deep into the body, and certain muscles in the upper chest, the throat, the jaw, the tongue, start to manipulate the sound into the desired tune of a resultant expression, which actually may not be the truth. And I call that the secondary impulse that is then running the voice. And at that point, it's a manipulated sound. Let me read from your wonderful Freeing Shakespeare's voice ah. and quote you and see if you still stand by this expression that you wrote these many years ago. I'm quoting, I would not, I think, be going too far to say that the 20th century experience of emotion is actually the experience of neurosis. That, that is the deflection of emotion from breath and voice to nerve endings and external muscles. The twitching jaw muscle, biting back feelings, is immediately recognizable on the movie screen as a strong man's strong emotion. Absolutely. I think that's still the case, don't you? I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. I, I, I don't see how that's that's uh, readily going to change because our culture doesn't welcome free, expressive, truthful, personal statement very much. The way we are educated, the way we, what happens in school is almost inevitably going to close off the spontaneous natural, authentic expression of what it is we want to say. Yes, but can we be sure that we're not guilty of nostalgia for a golden age that never was and that that there never has been a place, a time or a place where this free release of an authentic, genuine, unrestrained self through voice and speech existed? Or can you point to a time when we can be sure that things were otherwise... Well, no. Uh, there is quite a lot of evidence, though, that our voices and our speaking have moved out of an embodied experience to an experience of speaking that is up in the head. Mm-hmm. There are various um, wonderful writers, uh, Walter J. Ong and uh, Ian McGilchrist, you know, who have mapped that, in a sense, devolution of voice from an imaginative, experiential, incarnated process to one that is disembodied, that is governed by the frontal lobes, by the logical, rational mind that describes how we feel rather than revealing how we feel. And are we to lay the blame for this regrettable devolution at the door of technology, starting with the invention of writing some few thousand years ago <laughs> well, and continuing yes. into our cities, great city-states and uh, culminating in the artificial amplification of voices and the what I call the tyranny of literacy? 
the tyranny of literacy, uh, but you have to balance it out also. We can't deny that there has been a great benefit from lit- literacy, the spread of knowledge from the elite to everybody. I mean, it is knowledge is now available to in an almost democratized way. I've just come across this description by a man called Hugh of St. Victor. He was a 12th century monk. And, of course, the monks preserved reading and books and writing and all the stuff that was valuable about the written word. However, this is how he describes reading. I am enjoying the sweetness of words. Now, The word sweet used to be connected only with spiritual matters, God and spiritual matters, because sugar hadn't yet come to be a popular and widespread experience. So the sweet that applies to sugar wasn't initially to do the sweetness of food. It was the sweetness of a spiritual connection. He says, enjoying the sweetness of words... I chew them over and over. My internal organs are replenished. My insides are fattened up and all my bones break out in praise. <laughs> How about that? I love that. Is that fabulous? Isn't that fabulous? So, of course, when he was reading, it was the fashion not much known today that reading used to be something one undertook aloud, even when oh, one, yes. one was in one's closet alone. Absolutely. One was reading aloud. Somebody who read silently without moving their lips was very suspicious. A, a definite seditious individual, no doubt. Yes. yes. The point about what then has happened, what is of devolution, you go to through Shakespeare where it's still an oral, oral communication largely still embodied. We still know that thing of it is the the organs that were the repositories of thought and feeling. So the gall held anger, the bile held bitterness, the bowels, funnily enough, bowels of compassion as well as being under the influence of hell and lust and so on. And then you come up to the redemptive heart where love Lies and then goes on into the soul in the head, which is under the guidance of God. So that all of that, the cosmic picture is very present in the microcosm of the body, which is reflected in the macrocosm of the surrounding world. And we're made of the same thing. So the human being is made of earth, air, fire and water. And so are the hills and the fields surrounding them. So there's a kind of merging with the uh, natural world and with the cosmos, and that still and, and all the in, all the elements of the cosmos were sentient until until materialism and and uh, Cartesian and duality rob made material things without consciousness, right? Yeah, you're saying it for me. That's good. <laughs> so, yes, then we come to Descartes, and he says, I think, therefore I am, not I am, therefore I think. I think sentience is uh, is perhaps going to come back into the scientific mainstream. There are some scientists like Rupert Sheldrake who are uh, crying from the wilderness outside the mainstream and saying, hang on a bit, maybe the sun is conscious, maybe the whole cosmos is conscious, and maybe it's not a prerogative of of our species. 
Yes, I haven't read Rupert Sheldrake. I obviously should. But there is certainly so much wonderful evidence coming in from neuroscience now about the fact that we have brains in our bellies. What's it, a 100 million neurons in the gut, the enteric brain, the sensory brain. 86 billion, yes, up in the skull, but 40,000 neurons in the heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's very encouraging. It sort of hooks us back up to the ancient world, yes, which maybe, believed that maybe, everything came from the heart. Yes, and maybe the Egyptians had it right, huh? Yeah, oh yes. The Egyptians, when they, when they mummified the dead people, they mummified all the organs, but not the brain. They threw it out. There was no use for it. It was not the repository of our essence, right? Totally not. I'm going to skip back a minute or two to when you referred to Shakespeare. And here was a question that I wanted to explore with you. A listserv that you and I both tune into, Vastavox. There was a nice Mm. discussion recently led by Karen Riker, who was decrying the the speech style of our younger radio news readers. And then someone, someone, some other colleague who might forget, someone in London who trains BBC news readers. Mm. reported on the on the cultural resistance that the younger speakers have towards the going over the top that they identify as as the hallmark of the older readers so my question to you Kristen is to what extent can we uncover the prevailing cosmological paradigms our world views simply by listening not simply to what is said but how it's said do do you and I in our 70s and 80s, reveal something of our cosmology in our voice that the younger generation can identify as a, as a passé view of reality? I would simplify the picture by saying that when you allow young people to breathe which they don't normally do because they're glued to their iPhones. But when the iPhone goes away and they are introduced, reintroduced to the feeling of breath in their bodies, and when they are reintroduced to the feeling of their voices in their bodies, they feel liberated. I certainly have no interest in giving in to something that seems to be the zeitgeist of the time, which is that young women all talk in a, in a completely flat way or whatever. I mean, they, they, give them half a chance. They release out of that into some much fuller experience of themselves and their lives. And of course, that's what needs to be revealed in their voices. How much of myself, how much of my life is filled with experience? And typically, when under your influence as a a master teacher, the clients that you refer to are released into that wonderful new territory. It can happen very fast. And it is to do with (laughs) relaxation. Mm -hmm. And it is to do with physically taking an interest in 
one's own body. So when you've but, released them into this wonderful new territory, or, or, or old, re- territory, old, old territory, which they've yes. rediscovered, then inevitably the, the prosody, the, the vocal dynamics are revivified. And, uh, yes. and, and once again become the friend of the argument. Talk, talk to me a little bit about prosody as the friend of the argument, the clarifying friend of the meaning. Uh, let me see if I can come at it from a slightly different angle because I'd like the word prosody to be much more common in uh, the way we talk about voice and speech. Wikipedia talks about it as that uh, the linguistic function is rhythm, stress, and intonation, but that the intonation reflects the emotional state of the speaker, the psychological state of the speaker, the form of the utterance, whether it's a question, whether there's sarcasm, the whole internal feeling backstory to the words that are spoken is revealed in prosody. A lot of us are stuck with, no, not me and not you, (laughs) but a lot of people are stuck with a prosody that only reveals a very, very small slice of who they are. When I'm talking to actors, training actors, I say, you have your own self-identifying prosody your own rhythms and tune which identify you. That prosody has to give way to the prosody of the writer of the words that you are speaking, If the, whatever playwright it is. If it's Shakespeare, he's going to ask you to release your prosody into many, many more areas of the music of language than you currently are experiencing. And then, if you're playing a character, there is the character's prosody. We have to let go of mental habits of this is how I speak in order for the other possibilities to come through that then reveal the writer rather than describing the uh, what we think is an interpretation of the writer. Mm-hmm. Switching topics. Last month, I spoke with Phil Thompson, and one of the interesting topics we discussed was the intersection between prose and verse. When does verse turn into prose? When does prose turn into verse? And uh, later this year, I have an interview with Julianne Kayes and Jeremy Fisher, and I plan to ask them about the intersection between speech and singing. When does singing become speech? When does speech become singing? And so I had planned to ask you, Kristin, about the intersection or the boundary between voice and speech. Is there a place where voice and speech fuse, where one morphs into the other? What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I teach speech. (laughs) Did you know that? (laughs) I'd be crazy if I didn't (laughs) but I I come to it uh, from a different angle I think from from the the norm Uh, I come to it in the way that I learnt it from my teacher from Iris Warren 
Uh, and she got it from, I think, the Central School tradition, which was based in W.A. Aiken and the vowel resonator scale. And a lot of so, that made its way over to the teachers at Rose Bruford, too. So I'm in a, an yes. inheritor of that tradition myself. Oh, great. You see, I think that's the, the, the music, the prosody of speech you know, really depends on the freedom of that vowel resonator scale. So that's how I come into the speech work. First of all, the voice and its full range and the vowel resonator scale. Then the, the economy of consonants. And then, and how they join together to make words, to make images, and that the the lips and the tongue and the um, the resonator scale of vowels are all then at the service of the imagery, the imagination. So the the embodied imagination then is revealed through the uh, through the voice and the speaking. Uh, through the mouth, through the articulation, and through the voice. I mean, I. So that's my way into speech and voice. What was your first? What was the originating question you had? How does it morph into it? To me, there's no problem. It's one thing. It's it's absolutely organic that the voice goes into the different shapes of the vowels and then is nursed by the consonants, if you like, or, or moved by the consonants. And then that can move from prose. Prose is, in the simplest way of talking about it, prose is our everyday expression. But of course, it is full of rhythm and stress and uh, rhetorical devices, which are rhetorical devices natural to the prosody of the mind and the body. And then when things get emotionally heightened, uh, we turn to poetry. And then when it all gets too thrilling and exciting to be contained within poetry, then we sing. Mm-hmm. If the speech impulse is strong enough, if I have a strong enough need under under grief, under elation, under euphoria, then I will, will naturally come closer to that borderline with singing. I Absolutely. love you. I have always loved you. I will never stop loving you. You know, and, yeah. and you know, I'm, yes. not quite, <laughs> I'm not quite singing, but yes, close but to I'm, it. I'm not, um, I w- would dare say I'm not transgressing the zeitgeist of, of today by undertaking that strong emotion that moves me closer to the boundary between speech and song. Right. And you can hear it in popular music. I mean, what's wonderful in the popular music with young people now is that there's no, there's no boundary between, oh, well, that's, that's very complicated stuff, the male voice and the female voice. I mean, the, the range of voices that you sometimes hear now in popular music is fabulous and four octaves just absolutely available because people say, I can, I'm allowed to. Nobody's stopping me going really high or really low. And I love it when I hear that kind of, that kind of freedom. So there is, there's some positive stuff going on, I think, in, so we're not, in uh, we're expression. Not, you and I are not nostalgic enough for the golden age. Totally not. To, uh, to, to ignore the wonderful things that are happening today. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of freedom, uh, a lot of freedom of, of expression, which is very much to be applauded, I think. I mean, listen to that lovely, the lovely, clear expression of Greta Thunberg, the uh, climate change schoolgirl. Have you heard her speak? Yes. 
Oh, she speaks just directly, clear. Possessed of her truth. Entirely, yes. And, and giving herself the absolute license to uh, express it. There's hope. One last question. What new passions have you discovered in the last few years? There is one thing which I'm enjoying enormously being here in Orkney is appreciating amateur drama and appreciating the number of choirs there are in this small island, 20,000 people. There must be at least half a dozen choirs of various different sorts. There are 13 or 14 different community drama groups. People love getting up on the stage and acting. And that is to be encouraged enormously. And I thoroughly enjoy watching uh, amateur drama. Thank you so much, Kristen. You've Thank been, you. You've been very generous with your time. I know you've had a busy, tiring oh, day. No, it's a great pleasure to talk about stuff with yeah. someone like you. And thanks to you for joining Kristen Linklater and me, Paul Meyer. Join me next time when my guest will be Rena Cook, author of Empower Your Voice for Women in Business, Politics and Life. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>